Cooper, I noticed you've got a new pistol in your holster, oh. as they say. Well, Zach, that is what they call cell phones these days. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Uh, you got a new phone. Exactly. We talked about it very briefly. Yeah, we in the vaguely last episode, talked about it. But it's just, it's so good, it's worth bringing up. Yeah. How? So it's the new iPhone 12. iPhone 12 Pro. Oh. <laughs> I don't, I mean, hey. I didn't know you were going to flex on us like I that. I mean, sorry to do it to 12 him. Pro. First of all, what's the difference between the 12 and the 12 Pro? Not much, if I'm being honest. It the materials it's made out of. So instead of aluminum, it's, all right, we don't really care about the material. <laughs> uh, there's a lidar san- scanner. A what? A lidar scanner. I don't know what that means. Uh, it's not worth explaining. I have an uh, iPhone, just so y'all know, but I don't know what that means. Yeah, I'm more of the tech. I'm you, more you're of the a tech. tech guy. You're a techie. I'm so, but they've kind of reverted. And a better camera, but okay. and it's back to the. I don't know if you guys have ever had an iPhone five, but it's back to say. that boxy rectangular vibe. Very, yeah. very pristine. It is kind of. It is very sleek. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. I'm. I, I'm kind of at a point with Apple though. Every phone they put out, they put it out on the platform of it has a better camera. Yeah. But at what point are we like? This is they're now putting right. the Hubble telescope. At what point am back. I closing my eye and the picture's being taken? Yeah, it's like, like my eyeballs. New when shirt. is the progression of a camera like you have? I feel like pictures today are pretty clear. Yeah. I so mean, that's that a pretty that's a that's a good Apple hot take. Yeah. And Zach, I actually have a hot take of my own. OK, let me hear it. And my hot take is that at least at least in America or at least in the DFW Metroplex, okay. Apple could pull a prank on everyone that owns their devices i feel like they could pull a lot of pranks but what prank are you specifically talking about i'm talking about apple if imagine every time you go to bed apple changes the time off by one minute Hmm. so you go to bed and you wake up and at some point while it knows you're asleep it shifts your clock so that it's instead of like 3 30 a.m it goes like 3 30 a.m and then it jumps to 3 32 a.m do you think this is something they've done like you know it was daylight savings last week cooper no, I, I knew it was the other thing. I'm just kidding. But anyway, I'm just saying, I think Apple has enough power. The, the reach of their devices yeah. are wide span mm. enough that if everyone's iPhone was right and other people's Androids, we would trust the iPhone. Oh, totally. No one's trusting I think everyone, Android. Yeah, <laughs> everyone trusts the Apple clock more. Like, I don't even know how to find the actual time. Yeah, because my iPhone tells me it. I know. I just say that that is the time. It's the t- exactly. So what you're proposing is that Apple could shift they could humans. Tr- they, they could control the time. Wow. I'm saying they could change the time and no one would question it. They I, would, I wouldn't. Even if you saw your phone do that, they would think, oh, uh, they must have just had to readjust to the time. Like even if you were watching <laughs> it 3.30 a.m. and it jumps from 3.30 to 3.32, yeah. you would be like, oh, I like you would not think anything was off by that. I mean, this is quite a hot take. Yeah, because uh, I you've convinced me. I, I this is very believable. And uh, it just all I'm saying is hold on to your clocks, ladies Honestly. and gentlemen. Don't throw those analog clocks away <laughs> yeah. for the digital on the phone. You might. But the it. thing is, you have to change the time manually right. on a, on an analog. That's true. So yeah. it's like they really could do this to us. The, Buckle. You need. Everyone needs a bunker with a with a safe clock, right, where yeah. they just have a good time. You just know what in, it is in their uh, apocalyptic bunker, just in case. Yeah. I mean, because they they shift, they could shave a whole day off if they go crazy. They There's a lot of minutes. talk in the in the government today about big tech having too much power. You yeah. Know, Facebook over the elections and everything, but no one is thinking about. I'm t- I'm asking the real questions. Though. Yeah. Apple, I'm asking the real questions with real consequences. Slow. Apple slowly. Turning the clock back on time. They could time. literally erase or fast forward through days. That would be – you're actually blowing my mind right now. Well, Zach, I think about these things. We know you do. Yeah, That's I'm, what, a deep, I'm a deep guy. That is what I smelled burning as you walked yeah, through the door. Brain. It was my brain <laughs> saucing it up. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my co-host, Cooper McCullough. Coop, we need a time check. What time is it? My iPhone tells me, my iPhone, my (laughs) Apple Watch, my Mac, and probably my iPad would all agree. It's 2.35, but I don't know if I can trust it. I don't know what to trust anymore. just a regular old Walmart brand watch. It's a Timex. Okay, It's an Iron Man. Sorry. (laughs) What what are we clocking over there? So I will say I always keep mine at four minutes fast. Wow. So I'll always be at least four minutes early. Because if I look at my time, I say, oh, I need to be there at three, and I think it's 2.39. I'm like, oh, I need to go. But in reality, I'll yeah. get there early. Yeah. If it's, you know, you said you need to be there at three to 259. Yeah. 
You would need to leave. Well, no. Oh, did I say? Oh, it's 39. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe I, I think you actually might have said that. I think I just misheard you. But anyway. The uh, show who's right. I don't know who to trust these days. Yeah. But I do know we can trust the man on this episode. Oh, Thank I you. see what Thank you're doing. You. You've, you've hosted a podcast before, haven't <laughs> For you? For about a year, actually. Oh, yeah. Make sure if you haven't heard our, uh, our year-long, or not year-long, our year <laughs> celebration episode, go check that one out. It's a good one. But today, also a good one. Dare I say it? Don't. What? Don't say it, Zach. Are you sure? It, it loses meaning. It's one of my favorites. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> this is Tom Lindsay. A few episodes ago, you might remember we had a man named Dr. Kevin Roberts on yeah. the on the program. He uses his doctorate, folks. He does. D- uh, Kevin, wait, was it K. Roberts? I think so. No, I, it was D. Kevin D. D Roberts. Yeah, if you, we, we made the claim that if you have your middle initial in your LinkedIn, you look more and sound more professional. You're powerful. Yeah. So he was. he is the executive director of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Today, we have another man who works closely with Kevin at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. His name's Tom Lindsay. Mm-hmm. He's the director for the Center of Higher Education in the state of Texas. He has right, a long- a state. It's a big state. Law degree. He's taught at the University of Texas at Austin. Hook them horns, Hook and he teaches law. He he at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He does a lot of things with understanding education in a sense. Because I believe, and what a lot of as conservative thinkers would say, is that our education system is becoming more and more liberal. Yeah. So he he seeks to get down to the facts of our founding, of history, and what our governing documents are about. So what I talked to to Tom t- about today is our governing documents. It's just that it's our, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, mm. breaking them down what they mean, how they go together. And how to interpret them. And how to interpret Very them. important. Yes. And how to interpret them in today's context, because there's also a lot of talk about them being outdated. They're 248-something years old, right. less than that. Uh, they're about 230 So should we just old. throw them out? Jack? Should we? No. Okay, I agree. Never. I fully agree. They are living documents that can be changed. They are not inspired by God in that sense of living, but right, they are living right, out in, in today's uh, times. not God-breathed. That's the thing. Our governing documents created something that is so amazing with the the balance of power in this country that has built an amazing country. And I think we never need to lose fact, lose sight of the freedom that we get to live in because of the the foresight of the founders and the documents that they wrote. And so the leadership lessons in this episode are abundant about what these men did, the foresight that they had to write down, hey, this is the system that we've been living in that we don't want future generations to have to be under. And so I I love it. And it's a very academic interview. Yeah, and you're passionate about our Constitution. And I'm passionate about it. I I love it. And we learned so much from him. But Tom, Tom, I I am passionate about it, but I don't know as much as Tom. Right. You're learning. I'm willing to admit that. He's a smart man. Uh, Very interesting interview today. So without further ado, do we just do it? We do it. Just send it. Send it to your new favorite episode. Here's my conversation with Tom Lindsay. Well, Tom, it's so good to see you. Happy Election Day. It's uh, we're, we're praying hard and we're getting out to vote. I'm so glad uh, you took some time out of your busy schedule to be with us. And let me ask you some questions about our, our founders and our, our governing documents. But first, why don't you start by just introducing yourself? Who are you? Kind of how do you get to where you are at the Texas Public Policy Foundation? Sure. Uh, my name is Tom Lindsay. And now I'll be I'm in my 10th year here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation in Austin. And uh, my voyage here was really a lifetime journey. Right. I majored in political science, went on to get my PhD in political science with a specialization in political philosophy and American government, and taught and, and loved teaching, and I still teach at the university level today. But the more I taught, the more I became aware of what was going on in the universities, what they were teaching, what they weren't teaching the effect it was having on the K-12 teachers whom they educate. Right. Um, I began to realize the truth of what the political philosopher Harry Jaffa said Hmm. in his, in 1959, in his introduction to his book, The Crisis of the House Divided, Hmm. which is an analysis of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Right. It's the best book ever written on the Lincoln-Douglas debates. It may be the best book written on Lincoln, period. It may be the best book in American political thought, period. Really? Yeah, he died a few years ago. Jaffa, J-A-F-F-A, Harry Jaffa. Okay. Great mind. What he said in 1959 was this. 
He said that today, in 1959, in our increasingly secular society, that universities had pretty much become the crafters of the ruling opinions of society. Mm. And he then predicted that the utopianism and the intolerance that is taught in the modern university could not help but to spell the end of constitutional democracy. Mm. So, (laughs) with that in mind, um, I began to do more and more research on democracy and education, and specifically on education for democracy. Mm. That led me to become, uh, thanks to uh, President George W. Bush, uh, the deputy chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. It gave me a look at how we're, how we're doing on civic education across the country. And unfortunately, right. the answer is we're not doing well. Yeah. Uh, I was, as I mentioned, I taught for many years. I was a university administrator, but I came to the conclusion that the best contribution I could make is to be to try to reform education on a larger scale. Right. And given that Texas is the second largest state in the country, uh, what happens in Texas has reverberations across the land. So that's what I'm trying to do here. I think it's so important. And I think if you look at our education system, there's a lot of brokenness. And you see, I, I read an article that you had put in Forbes a few years ago, or I don't know how long ago it was, but we, we hear and see the uprising of the 1619 Project and, and different things that have infiltrated our education system that are spitting out lies or distorting the truth. And that we have people who are growing up to be uh, senators, congressmen, people who are leading and CEOs of businesses that don't understand fully where we come from. And it is true. I don't know who said it, but without knowledge, you can't love uh, what you're a part of. And if we don't know the truth, we can't love it. And I think I, I love that what you're doing there. And so I wanted to talk to you about our governing documents, the Declaration of Independence, declaring our independence from King George III, from, from the tyranny that was, and then leading on to the Constitution a few years later, really setting the framework for what our governing principles were going, going to be as a new nation. So to start there, kind of set the framework for what each of those documents are and how they play into each other. Be happy to do that. Let's begin with the Declaration. Okay. The Declaration can be understood as the spirit to which the Constitution gives flesh. Okay. And I'll explain that. If you go to the U.S. uh, Annotated Code, you will find the Declaration of Independence, along with the Constitution, listed as the organic law of the United States of America. The Supreme Court, in a number of decisions throughout our history, has referred to the Declaration as fundamental law in America. Now, what does that mean? The Declaration puts forward what can be called the American theory of justice. Mm. And that theory consists of four truths which Americans hold to be self-evident. The first is human equality. The second is inalienable rights. The third is government instituted by the consent of the governed. And the fourth and last is if and when government becomes destructive of the purposes for which it was uh, first instituted, it's the right and the duty of the people to abolish it. Hmm. Okay, let me... Let's unpack that. Yeah, there's a lot Um, there. A lot there. The principle of human equality, all men are created equal, is what's known as the primal or basic truth of the Declaration. If you understand what the founders mean by the statement, all men are created equal, you will understand how the other three self-evident truths are true. Mm. So, human, and and of course, We know when the founder said all men are created equal, just as in the term mankind, all human beings. Right. There are three dimensions of equality that the Declaration is referring to. The first is psychological equality. And that means simply equality of mind. Now, that's not to deny that there's a vast difference between my my poor mind and that of an Einstein or an Aristotle, right? But what the, declar- the Declaration is mindful of those differences. But what it's arguing is that those differences, as important as they are, pale in comparison to what we share in common as human beings. Mm. Right? So 
the difference between my poor mind and that of Aristotle's is quantitative. Right. But the difference between my mind and the mind of the most intelligent dog, let's say Brin Tin Tin, right. that's qualitative. Okay. Right. That's what they mean by equality, right? The differences, as profound as they are, are quantitative, not qualitative. Mm. Do not deny our common humanity. Now, from that first aspect of equality, psychological equality, comes the second dimension, and that's ethical equality. Human beings live in a halfway house. Right. Below the gods above and above the animals below. Like the divine, the humans participate in reason. Like the animals, human beings have bodies and they have passions. That's both why law is possible for human beings and also why it's necessary. Right. Now, because we are neither gods nor beasts, it follows, says the Declaration, that we should not treat other human beings as beasts or expect them to obey us as if we were gods. And that leads to the third and final dimension of equality in the Declaration, and that's political equality. Because if we are, as the Declaration states rightly, all free and equal beings, well, then how do we justify some human beings ruling over others? Right. The answer is only through consent. Right? The consent of the governed, yes. Exactly. Exactly right. So that's the first, the first self-evident truth. The second self-evident truth, inalienable rights, also helps to explain the content of our equality, because we are also equal in our God-given inalienable rights, which Jefferson tells us the three most important are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Correct. Now, inalienable rights is something that our audience needs to understand better, because it's misrepresented today. Right. We all know inalienable rights means government can't alienate them. That's right. And other people can't. That's right. But what's crucial, and this comes from the philosopher John Locke, mm-hmm. whose influence on the Declaration is very powerful. Right. Even we don't have the right to alienate our inalienable rights. Mm-hmm. That's why Locke has a prohibition on suicide. Right. And you think, now, oh, wait a second. I can kill myself. Nobody can stop me. Right. They're not watching. Right. That's true. You can kill yourself. That's different from saying you have a right to kill yourself. Mm. Locke denies that because he says we are not the authors of our life. And therefore, we don't have the right to exercise godlike control over it, even for ourselves. So then we think, now, wait a second. Why is that so important? The answer is this. In America, we have a limited democracy. There are some things majority, even we're a democracy, which means majority rules, but there are some things majorities cannot, should not do. Why? Only because of the doctrine of inalienable rights, understood as I've just articulated it. Because if we had a right to alienate our inalienable rights, then the majority acting in our name, right? Because that's how it always works in democracy. Right. Right. The majority could say, we have voted that you 10% left-handed people are now our slaves. Hmm. Now, is that undemocratic? No, it's a 90% vote, super majority. Is it just? No, it's not. But without inalienable rights and without that prohibition on even our being able to alienate our inalienable rights, that would be washed away by majority tyranny and there would be no basis. See, for example, If you go to a a victim at Auschwitz, one of the Nazi concentration camps, and you tell the person, well, look, uh, Hitler may be enslaving you and he's going to take your life, but he can never take away your inalienable rights. Now, that might seem like cold comfort. Right. Right. But here's why it's so crucial. If the Nazis had won World War II and educated all the children to become good little Nazis and exterminated all the anti-Nazis, that, according to the Declaration, still would not make Nazism just. It would still be a tyranny. Why? Because that standard that distinguishes tyranny 
from good government is above us. It transcends us. It's not made by us. Right. That's why it's so important. Yeah. And then the third self-evident truth is that government must be instituted by the consent of the governed. As we've already discussed, that follows from our, that's the closest you can get to justice among free and equal beings. Right. And then fourth and last is the right to revolution, not just the right, but the duty. Yeah. Right. Because what makes the declaration so revolutionary, you know, in the past, if you look at Magna Carta, et cetera, you had grants of liberty that were given to the people from an all-powerful government. Right. The Declaration turns that upside down. Now, the people in their natural state possess all power, and they decide to delegate some of their power to the government, which is understood as their servant. Mm. Absolutely crucial. Right. Which is so revolutionary, especially for its time, and especially coming from the oligarchy of the, I mean, the uh, British monarch uh, being able to the ruling class over the people and then to institute, as the framers did, the sin of the consent of the governed. So really the people rule and the, the government governs in, in the sense of we, we get to vote and they get to choose and, and do their, what they do up in Washington, which is so fascinating. So we've, we've done the declaration. So go into the constitution, the, yeah. the, the flesh of this, of where this came from, the governing document of our Republic. What is the framework of that? Well, as I mentioned at the outset, the declaration and the relationship between the declaration and the constitution can be understood as a relationship between the spirit and the flesh, right? The constitution gives flesh to the democratic spirit of the declaration of independence. It constitutes Mm. the American theory of justice, Right. right? Now there are those who argue that the constitution retreated from the democratic spirit of the declaration of independence but I don't think that's the case. Right. And more importantly, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King, none of them thought that the Constitution retreated from the democratic spirit of the Declaration. Mm-hmm. Instead, they called on the Constitution to live up to its promise. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference between now and today. Today, critics of America point to the existence of slavery at the time of the founding and therefore say to eliminate all racism once and for all, we also have to eliminate the Declaration and the Constitution. Right. Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln would be horrified at that prospect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so important that we know that. And this stuff is not taught in schools and in at the university level. And, and no. that's where we see the uprising that we have that we need to erase our past so we can move towards a, a better future. That's right. There are only two types of civics taught in universities today. And I say this as someone who's been involved in teaching since 1980, in, at the university level since 1981. It's either no civics or it's bad civics. Mm. Don't take my word for it. The U.S. Department of Education finds that today only one in three students graduates from college having taken even one course in American government. Mm. Now, why is that? I don't blame the students. It's because universities no longer require it. Now, and given how badly they teach it in, in accord with the New York Times 1619 project, you wonder if you if requiring it would even be a help. There's a bill, a bipartisan bill in Congress right now to establish uh, uh, civic education under national control. God can only know what, what will come out of that. Yeah, thing. what the national control. Do we really want more national control over, our, over whether it's healthcare, whether it's education? Do we really want more federal national control? I don't, I don't think that's really what the people want. What the, that would not be consented by the governed if we want to put no. it to the talk of our documents we're talking about today. But I do want to talk about something that is mentioned, a phrase that is mentioned so much and can seem contradictory uh, to a lot of the people who you hear talking about the, the wrongness of these documents and the wrongness of the founders because I want to just know how to reconcile it. And it's so simple. It's simply all men are created equal. And we know that this is true, that everyone is created in the image of God and all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with these certain unalienable rights, which comes from that Lockean principle that you talked about. But what I believe is so interesting is the real, the John Locke principles are life, liberty, and property. 
but I think it's so interesting that they didn't put property in there because at the time that could be seen as the slaves and African-Americans being put under the, the, the banner of property, which they did not want to happen. So you see them put pursuit of happiness, which I that's think is exactly also overlooked. So no, that's good. How do we recognize or how do we reconcile all men are created equal and slavery at the time? How do we reconcile that? Because that's what so many people are wrestling with today. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and first, you're absolutely right. The, the replacement of property with pursuit of happiness was a slap at Southern slaveholders right. with their insistence on the rightness of what it was called chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeffrey, what, another thing that's not taught anymore, unfortunately, is that the Declaration of Independence that we have isn't the first version. Right. Yes. This is so interesting. Yeah. Jefferson wrote a rough draft. Now, uh, if you're, you know, if we remember from the Declaration, after you get the theory of justice, then the latter half is the, the list, the long yeah, train. The long list. Right? Yes. Everything the king did wrong. Everything the king did wrong. Now, in other words, this is a prosecutor's case, right? Right. right? He's prosecuting. If you're prosecuting somebody for a number of crimes and you want to be effective with the jury, do you start with the worst crime and then go down to the least? Or do you start with the least and go up to the worst? Always work your way up. You always work your way up, right? You don't want to say, Your Honor, this man murdered, he kidnapped, and oh, by the way, he also jaywalked. Right. It doesn't work. You go the other way around. So, Jefferson, knowing that, The long train of abuses and usurpations starts with the least and goes to the worst. Mm. Now, the original least is still in the declaration that was approved by the Continental Congress, and that is simply that King George III has refused his assent to good laws. So what? Legislatures say that about presidents and governors every day of the week. (laughs) All the time. Right? Right? But when you get to the last charge in his original draft, it says... And I'm quoting here, King George III has waged cruel war on human nature itself. And then he says, depriving men, and he puts men in capital letters of their liberty. He says in violation, he even says violation of the principles of a Christian king and more in the practice of infidel powers, because then as today, Muslims were the primary traders of slaves. Today. Our students aren't told this, but there are still 40 million slaves in the world right. today. Slavery, slavery has not been abolished. No, it is not. It's existed for 9,000 years, and it has not been abolished today. Unfortunately, too many of our students think somehow that America invented slavery. Yes, also not for which true. I don't blame the students. I blame the adults who are supposed to be educating them. Right. Right? They're supposed to know better. Of course. So. This was Jefferson here. If there's any question about whether the Declaration was meant to, inc- whether African Americans were meant to be included in the men and all men are created equal, you look at Jefferson's first draft. That answers the question. Yes, in right. capital letters. Yes, as he yes. puts it. Mm-hmm. Now, why didn't that turn out to be the final Declaration of Independence? We know why. Mm-hmm the South would not have joined. Right. And we wouldn't have been able to fight a revolutionary war without all of our, without the uh, congruent union. We were fighting at the time, the most powerful nation in the world. Right. Right. Um, It was hard enough to win United. If the South hadn't joined, we'd have lost. Hmm. The North would have lost. How many slaves would have been freed as a result? None. Zero. Yeah. Exactly. So that, so that's part of Jefferson's point in that paragraph that's deleted. He says, it, rightly, it was England that brought the slaves to the United States. The United States wasn't in control. We were just uh, a colony. Right. Of, right, a colony of Great Britain. Jefferson also said, quote, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his vengeance cannot be held off forever. He was talking about slavery. Right. We tend to focus today on the fact that Jefferson had slaves, which he did. He was born into it, as were many of the founders at that time, and and that Jefferson never freed his slaves. 
But what isn't paid attention to is that in 1776, when all the states were writing their own state constitutions, because now they were free of Great Britain right. if they won the war, Jefferson introduced a motion to ban slavery. Now, this is a guy in a slave state who wants to become president. Yeah. Right. And yet he still did that. And he still became president. And he still became president. And also because, look, at the time of the founding, they knew they were fighting a war in the name of human equality. Right. They knew that slavery was a contradiction to that. Even in the South, the best defense they could make at that time was that, yeah, but it's a necessary evil. Mm. But by the time you get to 1820, John Calhoun, senator from South Carolina, suddenly now the South is defending slavery not as a necessary evil, but to quote Calhoun as a positive good. Mm. Right. So it ultimately took a civil war to end slavery. The founders thought at the time of the founding that not that the South would necessarily become more moral, but that it would see that its slave economy could not compete with a free economy. Mm-hmm. Now, they were wrong. And ultimately, the South held on to slavery even tighter. Right. But it played a role because the North fought the Civil War with one hand behind its back. Mm-hmm. It really did. Yeah. I mean, they were doing all they were building Railroads across the, going across the country at the same time, they passed the Morrill Act, which established the land-grant colleges across the United States. Right. Why was that? Because they had more men, more money, more equipment. Why did they have all that? Because they had a free economy. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it played a role. They, they hoped it would wither away and that they could get rid of it politically. None the, but... Nonetheless, they stuck to their principles. And in time, so I guess the bottom line is this. The question of slavery was solved, was answered in 1776 in principle. Right. But it took many years and it took 600,000 lives in in the Civil War Mm. in order to bring those principles into practice. Yeah, and we should never throw that memory away. The memory of the men who died fought brother against brother, mother, father against son to end slavery. And we should never throw that away, especially in the Civil War. And especially when we, we plaster the names of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, the people who there is a great irony and a great contradiction that these men did own slaves. But we also we have to read between the lines and see that Jefferson did. He, he motioned to abolish slavery, that the first state to abolish slavery was in 1777. I believe it was Vermont. And That's George right. Washington Washington's dying wish was that all of his uh, slaves be freed. Benjamin Franklin did not own slaves. Alexander Hamilton did not own slaves. And we have to know that what these men were were fighting, they were not creating a perfect union, but a more perfect union that was going to progress into where we are today. No, that's exactly right. The fact that America had slaves at the time of its founding, that's not exceptional. Right. Every country in the history of the world has had it. Right. As we said, there are still 40 million today. What makes America exceptional is that in its founding document, its first statement, its first self-evident truth is a repudiation of slavery. Mm. And it's because we took that seriously and believed it that we fought the Civil War. It's why we criticize ourselves when we witness racial injustice. Right. Right. Did the Nazis uh, uh, ever do uh, academic studies of the treatment of Jews? No. Why? Right. Why not? Because they didn't value equality. Right. Yeah. I think it's so interesting when we can just distort our, our founding and distort where we came from in order to fit a narrative that we want to play today and, and what sells, honestly. But the fact is that we have truth on our side and that we know that all men are created equal. And, in, and to ensure that our republic continues on and to create a more perfect union like what the founders had in mind, we have to continue to push for the truth and to know and to act like all men are created equal. And so it's easy to reconcile once we know the real truth behind these these uh, founders that they own slave yes they freed slaves yes and they also believe that all men are truly created equal and endowed by their creator with these rights rights of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness not property the next line i wanted to talk about with you is uh, a line that's kind of thrown around a lot but not really understood it's a beautifully written line by jefferson and it's the laws of nature and nature's god kind of break this down for what it, what does this mean and where did jefferson get this idea 
Well, there are a couple of sources, certainly uh, from from John Locke. Right. He speaks of natural law and says that there is actually natural law in the state of nature. It also comes from some uh, uh, medieval Christian thinkers. Now, here's part of the re- the reason that the Declaration has pro- proved so effective, not only in justifying our revolution among our own country, uh, our own our own uh, fellow citizens, but to the whole world. And more than 200 years later, the reason is because it was able to harmonize the political conclusions of both religious believers and what we'll call enlightenment deist types. Right. right. Jefferson was a deist. Deists believe in a God, but it's a, but it's a God that can be known through reason. The God, God for deism simply winds up the watch, lets it start ticking and no personal intervention. Exactly. Okay? Yeah. Nonetheless, Jefferson, the deist, along with the, and of course, the overwhelming majority of American citizens at that time were devout Christians. Right. Um, and that's why they fled. They were fleeing for religious freedom. And so why would we not, we set up a church because we don't want to be under the Church of England. Sorry, I had to interject. No, no, that's exactly right. So what they could both agree on was that there should be religious liberty. Now, Jefferson may have wanted to separate politics from religion because being an Enlightenment type, he, he worried that religion would interfere with politics. Right. But the vast, overwhelming majority in his audience who ratified the Constitution under which we live, they agreed with him that they didn't want to, they did not want to mix politics and religion. But they didn't want to mix it because they did not relig- want religion to be tainted by politics. Mm. Right. So it doesn't matter. They agreed formally. Right. On 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 religious liberty. And that was what was crucial. Mm. That's so interesting. It's such an interesting way to put that because I think a lot of Christians get that mixed up is that we want this, this, this idea of the separation of church and state, which isn't in either of these documents, but really it's a, an idea that Jefferson pushed. And I believe it's in one of his, his speeches or a letter that he had written to an assembly. Uh, but talk about that. Yes. Letter yes, yes, yes. Um, but what, what should that look like? How do we inform, how do we use our religious, uh, what we believe about the Bible, about Christianity, about um, what these founders believed, and interject that into what we believe about what policies should be pushed. And what's kind of, what, where, what's the line there? Yeah, well, it can be tough, but not as tough as it's presented today by the left, for right. whom uh, no one can uh, rightfully exercise power unless they're an atheist. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's their conclusion. Right, yeah. Uh, which, of course, is just nonsensical, mm-hmm. right? Uh, separating church and state is not the same thing as separating religion and politics. Mm. The founders expected people to act on the basis of religious conviction. Right. Uh, that's been true of human beings uh, from time immemorial. And uh, they would also applaud that. As, as George Washington said in his farewell address, the first draft of which was written by Alexander Hamilton, who's not a bad speechwriter uh, to have for you, if you're president, uh, Washington said, religion and morality are essential props of American democracy. Mm. Right? So, so no, so, uh, and you're right that this notion of separation comes from a letter that Jefferson wrote. Jefferson wasn't even in the country when we wrote the Constitution. Right, yeah. In he fact. in France, correct? He was in France, that's right. Something that your audience will be interested to know. The First Amendment, all of the first 10 amendments, applied only to the national government, not to the states. So with regard to the free exercise uh, and, and establishment clause with regard to religion, Congress couldn't establish a national church, but states could and in fact did. Right. Massachusetts had an established church, Congregationalist Church, until 1833. Hmm. Yeah. People tend to forget that. Now, after the Civil War, using the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court has what's called incorporated a good number of the first 10 amendments to apply also to the states. 
Okay. Right. But that wasn't the case under the original Constitution. Moreover, when the Supreme Court ruled on politics and religion cases, up until up until about 60 or 70 years ago, it was regarded as constitutional and as wise to support what was called general religion. In other words, it was believed that what was called non-preferential support of religion was constitutional and required. Meaning those general principles that constitute what we call the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's only been in the last 70 or 75 years that now the First Amendment is read to assert a moral equality between religion and irreligion. That was never the case. It was meant to establish an equality among religions, not between religion and atheism. And the French political philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote Democracy in America, he was here in 1830 and 1831. What Tocqueville said was this, and we see this today. He said, today, meaning in 1831, the battles are between and among religions. Mm. He said, but the day is coming when the battle will be between religion and irreligion. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's where we're at today. Exactly. And I I think that is true as as Christians and as believers that we should allow our convictions, our spiritual, our religious convictions to impact the way that we govern. If we see the way that we're treating abortion, gay rights, anything about that, the way that I see the world, the worldview which I look through the lens of religion is going to affect the way that we govern, going to affect the way that we vote on policy. And I think it should. And I think the founders wanted that. How could it not? How could it not? Right. Right. Uh, you, you can't ask someone to go against their religious convictions in order to appease someone because they love, you know, it just doesn't make sense, but that's right to get down back to the constitution. So we've talked about the declaration. It's the spirit and, and into the flesh of the constitution is the constitution a glorious Liberty document, or does it set up a legacy of slavery? Cause this is the big question that I think is riddling our country. Is it a, is it this glorious Liberty document that we see that, I mean, that phrase comes from uh, Frederick Douglass or has it created a, a caste system that is in a, is that is cyclical that started with racism, went into segregation and Jim Crow laws. And now we're into it now with the war on drugs. Is this just the cyclical slavery or oppression idea? Yeah. That is the question today. And the good news is we don't have to run away from the truth. The truth is on our side. You're right. Frederick Douglass said that the Constitution was, quote, a glorious liberty document. Mm -hmm. And he said that before before the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which outlawed slavery and and, uh, gave uh, uh, freed slaves the right to vote. He said it before that. Why? How could he say that? A black man. Right. Uh, A former slave himself. If you read his autobiography, uh, he was beaten because he was caught trying to learn, trying to learn how to read. Mm. Right. He uh, tried to escape a couple times and finally succeeded, then was able to buy off by his freedom. Mm. So how could he think that the original Constitution, which allowed for slavery, was a glorious liberty document? First and foremost, he pointed to the ban on importation of slaves. The Constitution says no sooner than 20 years from now, uh, Congress can put into effect a ban on the importation of slaves. Jefferson did it, and it happened. 1808, right? It's a big move, yeah. Big move. Frederick Douglass said, you don't ban something that you think is okay. Right. You don't even ban something that you think is morally indifferent in your fundamental law, right? And another thing that unfortunately students are not taught uh, today, if we hear any mention at all of the three-fifths compromise Mm. in the Constitution, yeah, what we hear back is, well, that just shows that the founders thought that the slaves, the black slaves, were only worth three-fifths of a white person. Nothing could be further from the truth. Right. Fortunately, we have the records of the federal debate, right. right, of the debate at the federal convention. Here's what was going on. They were trying to decide taxation and representation, which is based on population. Hmm. 
though each state gets certain number of representatives and also a tax burden that they owe to the federal government based on the census, based on their population. Right. Now, if the three-fifths number was meant to refer to the humanity of the slaves, then which side, there, one of the two sides wanted the slaves to count for zero. Mm. Which of the two sides would, would you think, if it means the slaves' humanity, would you think uh, wanted it to be zero? Well, it would have been the, if they wanted to be worth zero, it would have been the South, correct? It would have been the South, right? That's how they justified slavery. Right. But it was the North. Mm. Now, why did the North? Because the North said, you can't count them. They're not citizens. They're not free. I see. But at the same time, if that was the case, the South would have gotten less representation, but they would have also gotten a lot less of a tax bill to the federal government. Right. Who would have had to pay that? The North. So they made a deal. Right. The South bought representation, right, and sold population. The South wanted their slaves each to count for a full person. Mm. Had nothing to do with their humanity. Right. Just another one of these malicious myths that is out there today, but which is easily overcome through proper education. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I think when we look at our education system and where we're at as a society, we need to look at our founding, our founding documents as these glorious liberty documents and as ways to create a more perfect union. And that's what they were doing. That's why they didn't say this America that we are establishing is a perfect union after we write these documents. We know that there is sin. We know that there is slavery because we are a fallen man. But that does not mean that the systems that have been created and established and sustained over 240 years are wrong and broken. And they need to be torn down. That's the biggest difference, I think, between what we believe and what a revolutionist would believe or an anarchist would believe is that I believe that people are innately bad and wrong and, and corrupt and evil. And so we're going to live in a broken system. The system is set up in a way to allow people to thrive and survive. But the fact that we have broken people is what brings it down. And so in order to create a more perfect union, the only way we can do that is to, is to continue to pursue progress and to pursue unity and, and, and an education system. So with that in mind, how just as a young person and as young people listening to this podcast, how can we defend the liberty that we have been handed? and uphold our republic as we move forward, because this is gonna fall into our laps. These conversations, what we're learning, the education system is gonna fall into the laps of someone listening to this podcast. And I want them to be equipped to be able to stand up for what they believe, because we know the truth is on their side. But if you don't know how to use the sword of truth so well, you'll, you'll use it in a way that's destructive. So I want them to know how do we defend our liberty as young people? That is the question. Uh, Former President Ronald Reagan reminded us, and I'm quoting him here, when he said that freedom is only one is always only one generation away from extinction. Right. Right. It's not a gift. It has to be re-earned by being relearned every generation. By which I mean to say that we can't defend that which we do not understand. Yeah. The situation today is even worse. It's not simply that students are not being taught enough to be able to understand their form of government. They're being taught to hate it, mm. right? That's the challenge that we face. So what can you do? If you're a college student, you probably are not assigned a short little book, which I think is the best little book on America's founding principles. And it's called The Founding of the Democratic Republic okay. by Martin Diamond. The Founding of the Democratic Republic by Martin Diamond. Okay. The best little book on the founding principles. And it's just a wonderful book because Diamond, in his early life, was a socialist. Hmm. But he kept getting frustrated because, unlike Europe, everywhere in Europe, beginning in the 20s and 30s, you had strong communist movements, but not in the United States. Diamond became so frustrated at his inability to do this, that he went back to graduate school to learn why. Mm. There he came under the tutelage of Leo Strauss at the University of Chicago, and in time came to love America. Interesting. Became one of its strongest. Yeah, it's just a wonderful story, yeah. right? 
So I, for if you're a college student, I would recommend that book. If you're a high school student, I would recommend a, a new book that is out by Wilfred McClay, M little C capital C L A Y called Land of Hope. Yeah. Now, if you're a parent I, and you've got kids in school, go to the school board meetings. Yeah. Get involved. Yeah. Get involved. Get involved. Go to the school board meetings because that's where the rubber meets the road. Right. Right. And that's where the big stuff happens. Mm. It happens to our kids. Right. right. Yeah. And that's such an easy way to get involved. It is an easy way. If you're an alum of a university, the next time they call you for a donation, and it won't be long. Yeah, yeah. Next time they call you, ask them a couple of questions. Have you signed the University of Chicago's statement on freedom of expression? Hmm. Interesting. Right? If they say no, then say, well, do you require a founding documents-based course in civics for all students, regardless of major. Mm-hmm. They say no, then say, when you've done that, get back to me. Right. Right. Yeah, it's important. So there's a lot of ways that you can have, have effect, positive effect. Yeah. And I think even just knowing these documents that we've talked about and documents that support it, whether it's the Lincoln address we've talked about, whether it's Washington's farewell addresses, any of Kennedy's speeches to the Reagan speeches, even reading the declaration, reading the constitution, knowing what these founding documents says, knowing how you are governed and then getting out to vote. It is election day. By the time you are listening to this, you will probably know who the next president is, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, that you get to participate. And we are so lucky and so free to be able to get to participate in that. And so it's your civic duty. It's what you should do. It's what we've been talking about for a few weeks now. Get out and vote and participate in any way you can. Read books, read and understand our history because what you cannot, what you do not no, you cannot love. And we love this country because we are free, but you have, I mean, you have to know, you have to know um, what we stand for. So with that in mind, Tom, thank you so much for your time and sharing, imparting your wisdom on us today. I think it's been so beneficial. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Zach. Thank you for having me.